So back in January, our elders and wives had a dinner together, and we were uh, in one of the homes uh, uh, of the elders that was hosting us, and, and we do this together with our spouses every January, and during that time, we do a collective uh, gathering of just our, our thoughts, our evaluations about how we as a church are doing, what we're hearing going on in the body, uh, what are our concerns that we might have, are there common uh, issues that, that need to be addressed within the body, and are there common uh, experiences that people are struggling with that we can begin to address. We do this every year, and it just gives me an opportunity as, as the pastor to be able to discern, like, where should we, we be teaching out of the Word of God in this uh, time? And uh, one of the elders said something this past January in that meeting that caused a collective sigh, quite frankly, because it was, it hit a nerve, if you will, of those of us sitting there. And that is, he he said this, and I, and I don't remember exactly verbatim what he said, but to the effect of, I believe more than ever, we're struggling with mental illness, with emotional brokenness, and relational issues like never before. And that it's, whether it's us ourselves feeling that and experiencing that individually, or somebody near us is in the throes of something intense on those levels. And so issues like depression, anxiety, tension, stress, brokenness where there's anger and resentment that builds up barriers and walls between us and other people, those things lead to ripple effects that cause great harm and honestly cause people to say, I have very little hope. And that's something that whether you uh, are experiencing it individually or it could be somebody very near you, we're all affected by it. In fact, as I've been reading over since that statement was shared in January, I've been reading uh, in that area and arena, and, and many are calling it a pandemic where the internal health, the emotional health of our society is deteriorated rapidly. Now, I don't think it's by mistake because when you start removing God out of society, things are going to happen. Now, there are some things that are physiological that, that are not environmental, but, I, but much of it is environmental uh, in addition to some of those things physiological. So please understand, I get it, that there are things that people can't help that cause them to go into depression and have anxiety issues and so on. But much of what we also deal with in society isn't physiological. It is environmental. It is spiritual. And it is about relationships. And so over the next uh, few months, we're going to do a series called Anchored. And uh, coming out of Hebrews chapter 6, where it says that, that we, our hope is found in Christ, and this anchors our soul. Our hope is found in Christ, and this anchors our soul. So when you go through struggles of depression or anxiety or stress or intense relational challenges, there are things that can be quite overwhelming, and we feel like we are on unstable ground, and as a result, we, we, we begin to struggle emotionally if it's something that's affecting us, and we're needing somewhere where we can place our feet and feel like we're in solid 
footing. And so this series, we're going to address it from a biblical perspective. Some of these issues that can help establish a foundation by which you are anchored, that even if storms come that is internal to you or external and affects you, that you can be an anchor in, in, in the sense of anchored to Jesus and be standing in the midst of that storm or be an anchor in somebody else's life because you're anchored in Jesus. And so we're going through this over the next few months. First of all, first four weeks are going to be about relationships. Often a lot of the issues that are at play on the emotional realm are connected to relational issues or brokenness. And so we're going to look at relationships. Then we're going to get into the emotional realms uh, uh, for four weeks or five weeks. And then we're going to spend uh, about five weeks looking at theology. Now you're going to say, well, what does that have to do with emotional or relational brokenness? Often our misunderstanding of God causes us to spiral downward. And this is about being anchored. This is about finding firm footing. And you're not going to find it in the human flesh. You're going to find it in an immovable God. And so we're going to look at proper theology of understanding God in the midst of our emotional and relational challenges. And then we're going to conclude with an apologetic portion where we can then uh, look outward and, and, and speak into others' lives in a gracious manner that can be helpful to them as they are going through such challenges. And so we're going to begin today looking at relationships, and we'll be doing so over the next few weeks. And so if you would turn in your Bibles then to Genesis chapter 1, and then also put your finger in John chapter 17. Those will be our, our two primary texts this morning. So Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 17. If you do not have a Bible, uh, just put your hands up and the ushers will be glad to provide you one. This is our gift to you. If you do not own one, please take it home. We would love for you to have the Word of God in your possession. So relationships. When I think through my life, I think through some of what are my happiest seasons, I'm immediately drawn, when I think happy seasons, I'm drawn to relational peaks uh, in my life. So there was a season of my life in high school where a group of friends uh, that had been formed together, we were all involved with uh, these music groups that were a part of Youth for Christ, and, and we developed a lot of relationships and started doing fun things on Saturday nights, creating good fun that was mostly legal. And so... <laughs> I, and I say mostly legal, uh, slightly maybe, uh, eh, we'll just not, we'll leave it at that. Um, nothing destructive, nothing harmful. But anyway, good, good fun, a lot of uh, good relational uh, things going on. And then I go into my college years, and again, some of those peak years where I felt like I was thriving and doing well, I can point to it was because I was part of a great circle of friends that were all pursuing God together. Because I, you know, I'm going into ministry, I'm pursuing a degree in that. And, uh, and there were some other friends that I had that they were not getting degrees in ministry, but they were all in love with Jesus. And we developed a lot of uh, core uh, commonalities in our heart. We got into the Word together, but we had so much fun together. Then when I also think, again, as, a, as a, you get older, then it's like when I met my wife, oh my goodness, 
did that not like send things to another level? First of all, Jesus chose not to come back with the rapture before I got married, which I thank God. That was a big concern for me growing up. That is like, yeah, figures, I'll get married and on the way to the hotel, he'll come. <laughs> Just an honest, honest uh, fear of mine. Um, so I am doing a few weddings this summer. I pray the same thing for you. So, uh, but again, pinnacle relationship, fantastic, and it's like, and my wife has become my best friend. You know, I had a best friend from age five through my college years, but we've both become married, and I'm confident that my friend Neil that's in Kansas City serving the Lord and, and myself, we both say our best friends are not each other anymore. It's our spouses, and we're very thankful for that relationship. But I can also say that, that not only is the marital relationship a part of some of the peaks of my life, but I can point to moments where as, as being a part of a, a team, a sporting team, where we're pursuing the common uh, goal of winning a championship and then experiencing it together. And I'm sorry I did not put the Eagles up this year because they are no longer the defending champions. I'm sorry, but if you're a Boston fan, you know, with the New England Patriots, you get, you get your glory moment right now. Um, but nonetheless, in sports, when you've worked really hard and you've, you're working towards a common goal, when you finally hit it, the greatest point of celebration is with those you achieved the goal and had pursued along with in the journey. That's the group you find your greatest fulfillment and joy in that moment. But then it goes a little different and strange when you talk about relationships. How about the relationship between you and God? When you pray, you're praying to God who you cannot see, you cannot hear, you cannot taste, you cannot smell, you cannot touch. It's kind of strange if you were somebody that was an atheist looking at another seemingly talking into the air. Have you really considered what others must think if they see you praying? We pray before our meals. So if we go out to dinner, we still pray before our meals. If we're in the public, I know that when we're done praying, you, you feel like there's a hundred people that just watch that happen. Whether or not they did, you know, it's what you feel. But if you're an atheist and you see somebody praying before a meal, wouldn't you think that's the most futile thing that you could ever do? They're talking to somebody that they cannot see, hear, talk to, taste, you know, smell, all those senses. Seems strange. But yet, for those of us who have tasted of the Lord, where we have felt his presence, praying is part of the relationship. Because it's the communication between us and God. God speaking to us, us speaking to God. Regardless of how it might appear to those who do not know him, this is so important to our relationship with him, is it not? When you consider Jesus, when you look at his life, he was always with people, always engaging others. Jesus never isolated himself away from a relationship. He didn't even step away just so he could be 
by himself, for himself, to himself. Some of you are saying, wait, wait, wait. Jesus did set aside time to go and be alone. Did he? When he went to be alone, was he going to be alone, like as in by himself, or did he go to go be with his father? You see, Jesus modeled that even when he had his public ministry, when he interacted with others, that there was still need of nurturing his relationship that he had had for all of eternity with his father. So he would step aside and, and be away from his peers on this earth so that he could go and be with his father God. So again, relationship is modeled even by God himself through his son Jesus when he spent all his time with people to engage people, to help people. And then when he wasn't with people, he was engaging God and keeping and maintaining his relationship with God as intimate. When you study causes of depression or anxiety that are environmentally started, not physiological, but environmental caused uh, uh, lonely, uh, in the sense of depression, environmental causes of that, they would say the number one thing that consistently shows up in data is that isolation and loneliness are at the top of the list of environmental causes of depression. Which begins to hint at something. If environmental reasons for causing depression begins with isolation and loneliness that says there's something internal about the need for relationships. So secondly, I would posture to you that if that is true, then that means that thriving in relationship is also one of the greatest causes to finding happiness and fulfillment. In fact, if you begin to ask people, are you on the meter of 1 to 10, people that are 8, 9, or 10 as to being happy or fulfilled, I'm pretty confident that if you were to ask them, are you isolated or alone and away from relationships, you would not find anybody to say yes to that question. Because you cannot find somebody that says, I'm completely happy on an 8 or 9 or 10 meter level of happiness, or uh, that I am fulfilled in the way of my life, and then them to be also say, and I do it completely independent of others. Nobody else is involved with it. I venture to guess you won't find such a person that's truly speaking honestly. So why is it that when they study the cultures of the world, every people group, regardless of whether Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, island life, or big mass uh, connected land masses uh, of people, it doesn't matter where they're at, skin color, language types. What's interesting is they all draw together. They do not isolate Healthiness in community is found in relationships. Why is this so that regardless of our languages or where we grew up or what our culture is, why is relationship always at the center of such community? And I would begin to argue and make the case, and we're going to do so through Scripture today, is that we're all designed to be relational, and it's a divine design. 
you and I were meant to be in relationship, not to be alone, not to be isolated, not to do everything as singular, but rather to do things together. In Genesis chapter 1, we make the case for our design being like God. And I want us to begin in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. Now I'm going to emphasize some words and read it again. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may be able to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and all over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God then created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them and blessed them. Let me stop there. So God pluralizes himself in this text. I, I intentionally emphasized the pluralized pronoun of us and our. God was not alone. He's always existed for all of eternity. It can blow your mind if you start thinking, okay, so before he created time and before he created the world, what did God do for all of eternity all the time? Really dive into that and you'll go nuts. It, it's, it's inconceivable for us to operate without a beginning and an end. Our, we're stuck in a concept, a linear concept, concept of time and God yet somehow outside the box of beginning and end of our history he always was fascinating but I can't explain it but yet God was not alone before he created the heavens and the earth in fact he says I am a part of other so God says let us Create man in our image, like us, to be able to experience things like we experience things. We know that if you were to read the entire text, I could, I could explain to you what the us means, but let's just, uh, for this day, can you just trust that, that the rest of the text suggests that, not even suggests, it says that God is one, and that one is found in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They operate as one, but yet they operate as three persons with unique purposes, but always together in unity. So in this, he creates you and I to be like them. That we would then have the privilege of using the skills we've given that are skills that are similar to God, where we can rule, we can guide, we can, we can plant, we can nurture all the things that were mentioned here as to why he made them in his image. To rule over the earth. 
with all those responsibilities. He created us to be like him. But not only did he create us to be like him in the sense of our skill sets, but he also created us like him in knowing what it means to have unity and oneness in relationship. So continuing on in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 7 and then skip to verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, going down to verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for that man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But... For Adam, no helpful, uh, suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he, and he had, that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why, then, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they became one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So in this text, we see that in Genesis 1, he says, I have created mankind to be like me. So we are a part of, he is a three-person uh, God. He is one. They are completely together in unison, having purpose. We too are created the same. We're created to have purpose, to have uniqueness and role, and yes, of different persons. And we're not to do our task alone. God didn't do his task of creating the earth and us part of it alone, so we will not also do our task here on this earth alone. We were not meant to be alone as he wasn't alone. And in doing our duty here on this earth, not only are we not to do it alone, but we do it in oneness, in unity together. So in this, we can say from this text that we are not meant to be alone as God is not alone. We are not meant to serve alone as he didn't serve alone, but rather we're to operate then in unity. Verse 24 highlights it, that we leave father and mother to be united to a wife and becoming one, one flesh. It's the same descriptor of talking about the oneness of God that between husband and wife, they become one. Now, you might be saying, okay, wait a second. This is talking exclusively about being designed for relationship, being designed for serving alongside the other, being designed for unity completely within the marital context. I would say you have misunderstood the complete start where it said man was not designed to work alone, period. 
Then he creates the marital relationship, yes, where they become one flesh, which is similar to the one person, uh, three person, but one flesh operation of the Godhead that we see there, we see now in the marital context. But that does not mean that the oneness and the unity and the intent to work alongside the other is exclusive to marital relationships. That's where we need to go to John 17 to get clarity. So I want us to turn there over to John 17. So a little context to John 17. This is Jesus praying the night that he was going to be betrayed. So if you understand... Within hours of this prayer, Jesus will be crucified. Within hours of this prayer, Jesus will be dead. So he is praying before his disciples for the final time for them to be able to hear what's upon his heart before the greatest moment that has ever happened on the face of this earth comes to fruition. So he prays within his prayer for the 12. Keep in mind who the 12 were. He already has a deceiver in the group who's already created a plan by which Jesus would be handed over. So this was somebody that was turning on him, sitting at the table. But yet, Jesus prays for the 12. He prays for their success in doing ministry. He prays for their Faith to not grow weary, but they will stay strong, knowing that they're about to leave him and disperse and, and to leave him alone at the point of need, at his greatest point of need, and yet Jesus prays for them. But then Jesus' prayer concludes by praying for you and I. Because he prays for those who are yet to be followers of Jesus. In fact, for those specifically who will become followers of Jesus because of the message uh, and the messengers of the 12. So let's begin reading in verse 20 and see when Jesus prays about you, for you and I, what was it that he prayed for that was most important to him in seeing that group of people, the church, thrive? Verse 20. So Jesus speaking, my prayer is not just for the 12 alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want you to, uh, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. 
I have made you known to them and will continue to make you, make you known in order that the love you have for me, for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus' prayer is singular. Lord, I not only pray for these 12 that I've invested three years into, but I pray for those who will believe the message that they share. And I pray that they be one. And then he expounds on that singular focus of prayer. So our, Jesus' vision for his people that are yet to come, and we're the yet to come people, 2,000 years later, his vision for us collectively is to be one. Relationally one. In unity, being together. And that this relational oneness, in 20, verse 21, at the end of it, he says that our relational oneness as a church reflects the oneness that is found between the Father and the Son. So there's a direct correlation between our oneness and the oneness of the Father and the Son being together, the relationship that they had together. And so our oneness then helps us understand how God operates and how he experiences oneness when we do the same here. And so it's about having the similar relationship, the same type of relationship that God has together. We are to have together. And that together, then we can have oneness from us to him and experience his oneness so that we can then reveal that through our oneness to others. And so Jesus is then the active counselor then for this oneness. In verse 22, he says, I'm giving you glory, just like the glory that is found between him and the Father. So he is giving us this glory, that this beautiful measure that is beyond what you and I experience in, in relationship here. He is now applying it to us and instilling then his relationship that he has with the Father into you and I so that we can experience wholeness here. So we receive the glory that is in the Father and we receive it so that we can glorify him in the way we interrelate. But verse 23 tells you why he prayed this. So if God is one, and then we've been created in his image to be like him, then broken relationships fall short in our ability to understand God. Broken relationships create barriers between us and God. Broken relationships also do not communicate who God actually is. So therefore, when Jesus prays in the garden for one thing, for his future church to be one, he does so because there's something greatly at stake. It's not only our wholeness and fulfillment and happiness as a follower of God that he would pray for our oneness, but it was also, in addition for that, to that, that he prayed for our oneness, verse 23, he prayed for our oneness because 
our oneness testifies to the rest of the world that Jesus is who he says he is, being the Son of God and being one with God. Which then means that if we are broken in our relationships as believers and followers of Christ, then we are telling the world that our understanding of God and who God is, is false and invalid. Because if you read Jesus, he says, I am one with the Father. Jesus makes that claim multiple times. I am one with the Father. I do only what I have seen him do. I only say that which I have heard him say. He operates in complete unity with the Father. Those were the claims of Jesus. And that in his oneness and unity with the Father, he was being obedient to death, even death on the cross, for the sake of you and I. All of that was in oneness of relationship with the Father. So if his church that bears his name, Christian, if the church that bears his name, Christian, operates in brokenness, operates in a lack of unity, does not embrace oneness, satisfied with, uh, with anger and resentment and separation, if that's the description of the church, then the world looks at our message as being invalid. Because the fruit of this God that supposedly is one is not evident in the church. And so it creates a struggle or a barrier for somebody who does not know Jesus if they're seeing the church being regularly broken in relationship with each other. And that's a travesty if you ask me. So in our unity, what Jesus is saying here, verse 23, in our unity, we are testifying to the validity of the message of Jesus before the world. And you know why this stands out? It's because if you just look at the people here in this room right now, all of us grew up in different households. We grew up under different influences. Some of us grew up in other countries, in other cultures. Some of us have been given poor examples by parents. Others of us were given great examples as parents. Some of us are, are operating with a lot of uh, uh, harm that's been done to us over our lives. Others of us let pride rise really high and we think we're God's gift to others. Between all those things that could exist in this room, if we actually operated in unity, would it not testify to a miracle? Would it not testify that there's something supernatural that when the world knows this group of people, the people of this region know all of those who sit here in this room and they see us and they see us operating in oneness and unity, they have to realize that can't be humanly possible. We don't typically have examples before the world that when groups of people come together to try to vote on something, that they can find complete unity and oneness. When was the last time our Congress, you would say, was unified and were one? We don't have it. Give me a group in the world that you can say there is unity in their spirit and heart 
and there is oneness in the way they behave. You're not going to find it unless you include the church. But not all the churches, but some. And when the church operates in unity, providing a gathering of people that operates in oneness and unity and embraces the idea that when brokenness does happen, that we fight hard for finding reconciliation and common ground, that we find peace with one another, then they see there is something that is inherently different among this group of people than there would be in any other group of people in the world. Jesus understands that when the church chooses to embrace brokenness as its norm, instead of fighting hard for reconciliation, that the church will then cause harm that is very difficult to overcome in the aspects of the gospel. Why? Because our unity or the lack of unity can cause either questions to happen or not to happen. So when we have unity, it provokes the question, how is it? You guys can operate in unity and oneness. How is it then that your message then would be powerful if you're regularly talking about how we don't get along and our relationships are fractured? How is it your message will ever be heard? You're just like everybody else, broken with no hope. The other thing I'd like to posture about this text and why Jesus would say is that if you embrace brokenness and you do not pursue forgiveness or reconciliation, ultimately your understanding of God becomes convoluted. You will not understand God if you continue to embrace that your relationships are not in the healthy place. Because relational brokenness, I'm absolutely confident, affects our relationship with God. If we're relationally broken with other people, we're going to be relationally broken with God. So the takeaways are this. As I look at this text, that we're designed to be one. We're designed to be unified. That's why when we're not in unity and we are in broken relations, that's why pain is so intense. It's because it goes against the very fiber of how God designed us. And that when that happens within the church, it grieves God and alarms God like no other because the church's unity is part of his testimony of his oneness. So therefore, our takeaways are this, is that living life in community is vital to our emotional and spiritual health. I'm going to repeat that because I don't want you to miss this. It is vital to your emotional and spiritual health that you are in relationship with other believers that are one and whole, in unity together. You see, living life in isolation is not healthy for emotional stability. I can get secular psychologists saying amen to that, not even knowing who God is that people that often are going through mental health issues tend to isolate themselves, and it's the worst thing they can do. And I believe that's so because it's in our design. We are made to be together. So don't live in isolation. Don't pull away, but rather draw near, especially to the family of God, for your own health. 
Life that is thriving is always better with others. And if you choose to remain broken relationally on earth, it will lead to a brokenness in your understanding and relationship with God. So living in community is vital to your emotional and spiritual health. Number two, we know and understand God better through relationships. If you choose to disconnect and just simply engage God individually, but in an isolated manner, your understanding of him then is left up to your own authority. Cultism and heresies thrive in isolation. You understand what I mean by that? Heresy means poor teachings, wrong teachings about God. Cultism is having a, a, a reflection of, of some level of truth, but yet being a complete false, uh, in, in, its, in its fullest form, being a false understanding of God. Those things, heresies and cultism, thrive when they isolate away from authority and isolate away from the church. In fact, isolation breeds misconceptions with God and of God. I know people that have been in the church their whole lives, but have chosen not to engage in relationships with the church. They just attend. And all of a sudden, they start getting these very unusual understandings of God. And then they leave the church because they no longer find it acceptable what the church teaches. And people that have known them wonder, how did they get there to think this is true about God versus what we know is true about God? And the reality is, is that happens when they choose to just be able to form their beliefs without others helping make sure that they see accurately and clearly. When there's no ironing, sharpening iron going on, then you're allowed to believe what you want to believe and your interpretation becomes supreme because it's not checked, it's not challenged. And so I believe God has designed us that in order for us to know him better, we know him better through relationships with the body of Christ than to do so in an isolated situation. He means for us to draw together so that when we go to the Word of God together, we can challenge one another to understand more clearly and more accurately the Word of God. Thirdly, not only are we meant to be in, re in re community in order to be healthy spiritually and relationally, and not only do we understand God better through relationships, but our relational unity, as stated from that text, our relational unity or oneness is our greatest testimony to an unbelieving world. If you want to know what is powerful to a world that is hurting and broken and feels very lost and hopeless, if you want to know what will speak volumes to them, live in unity and oneness of relationship where your health and your spiritual vitality is growing and thriving and that you have an accurate understanding of God and so your relationship with God is whole and unified, then know this, that in that it creates the question that people begin to under, want to know, how is it you're happy and fulfilled and filled with hope? Where does that come from? 
because our unity testifies to the unity of God and his work in us. It's otherworldly. It's supernatural. And that's why the church is, we as a church value so highly healthy relationships. That means if we know there's brokenness within our body, we're not going to give up trying to see that reconciled. We're going to go to the furthest end to see those relationships made whole. And therefore, as a result, each of us should not have the spirit of giving up. I recognize it's easy to say what I'm saying up here when I don't know the person that you've got in your mind right now. I don't. All I can tell you is I have the same type of person in my life. And what I've learned is that if I give up on trying to make it right with that individual, then there's a part of me that gets lost. Because then I settle for something that I know is not what God wants. And so you can never give up hope. There might be seasons of time, long seasons of time, where, where it remains in a broken state, but I don't give up in prayer, and I don't give up in the opportunities when they're provided, and sometimes creating those opportunities when God provokes it in your heart. This is not a place to grow weary, and yet relationships can make us tired. There's too much at stake. Your relationship with God and understanding oneness when you choose to embrace brokenness, your testimony before others, before God, and then being able to know that there is a God who can make things whole when you choose to embrace brokenness, how about instead embracing God's heart for oneness? And when you feel at your weakness, your weakest point, that you would say, God, help me to be strong again. Help me to see that there's hope in this relationship and to pursue it with your direction. Let's pray. God, I have no idea who in this room has relational challenges that are intense and difficult? But God, I just pray that you would help each of us not grow weary in well-doing. That we will be perseverant in these relationships. And that, Lord, you'll make us whole so that the unity and the oneness found in the church can be the testimony through our lives, to others that are so much in need of hope found in Jesus. So as we come to this table, draw our hearts together as one, unified together under one banner, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the living hope in the midst of when we feel very hopeless, maybe even in relationships, feeling hopeless. Maybe we even feel hopeless in our relationship with you, but yet you will prevail. So we have that faith in your work being enough. So we pray for the relationships we have that, that are hindered or broken right now. God, help us to not grow weary in pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness. Help us to walk whole, and in unity. Now, Lord, I pray that you be blessed by our lives as we walk out of here this morning. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. If you would like to pray with someone before you leave today, we'll have people underneath the cross be glad to do so. I'm going to ask you to stand at this time. But here's the commissioning. Value unity and oneness. And if you do, your heart is aligned with God. You want to be aligned with God? Value unity and oneness in truth. And may that happen this week as you venture the interesting and tricky grounds that relationships can bring. And I'll be praying for you in that cause. So God, I just pray that blessing over this congregation as they go. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.